Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Yak Talk, Hacking the Boards. I'm Ben. And I'm Yako. And for today's episode, number 35, we're going to be talking about restrictive lung diseases. Now that we've covered the major obstructive lung diseases, we're going to get into the other broad category. We'll focus on a few different causes, including both intrinsic and extrinsic, and we'll even sprinkle in some sleep apnea. Let's jump in. All right, Ben. So for our first case, we have a 60-year-old male with a past medical history of coronary artery disease, and he comes in with worsening dyspnea on exertion and dry cough for the past year. Vitals are normal, but his O2 is 93% on room air, and his exam reveals fine inspiratory crackles at the lung bases. Ben, what are the top two conditions on your differential, and what are you leaning towards? Between heart failure and interstitial lung disease, since they can both present with dyspnea and cough in an older man, his history of CAD first made me lean towards heart failure, but these fine inspiratory crackles put ILD on the top of my differential. So what is ILD and how does our patient's presentation fit with this disease process? Interstitial lung disease is an umbrella term for any disease which results in a substance being deposited in the interstitium of lung cells. This is most often caused by idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, abbreviated IPF, meaning scar tissue develops in the interstitium and results in dyspnea, cough, and eventually hypoxia. Our patient's fine inspiratory crackles are the classic hint on the exam that you're dealing with ILD. And what category of pulmonary diseases does ILD fall under? That would be restrictive lung disease, meaning they result in an overall decreased lung capacity, aka TLC or total vital capacity, which is essentially the amount of volume available to breathe with. If you have a bunch of gunk in the interstitium, then you have less overall breathing space. That makes sense. And nice use of the word gunk there, by the way, Ben. Zooming out for a second, what are the two general types of restrictive lung diseases and where does ILD fall under? That would be intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsic restrictive lung disease is essentially the same thing as ILD because they both mean that there is a process in the lung itself leading to decreased vital capacity. Extrinsic restrictive diseases occur as a result of factors outside of the lungs, which decrease the space that they have to move. We'll get to those at the end of the episode. That's a great explanation. Before you mentioned you're concerned about our patient having IPF, what are some risk factors for this condition that you could talk about? The main ones are male sex, age over 60, a smoking history, and actually a history of GERD. What would our next step in diagnosis be? Pulmonary function tests? No, actually, we'd want a high-resolution CT chest. You can get an x-ray if you want, but it can be completely normal or show nonspecific bilateral interstitial opacities, and so it might not be helpful. A high-resolution CT scan, however, would show what's called honeycombing of the lung, which describes the way the fibrosis thickens the areas lining the airways. Great. So let's say we get that high-resolution CT scan and it shows honeycombing. Can we still do some PFTs? Yes. We want to see how extensively his pulmonary function is affected. We would expect a decreased TLC, a normal FAV1 over FEC ratio, and a decreased diffusion capacity for carbon monoxide. Nice. Can you walk us through the pathophys behind those findings you described? I would love to. So TLC is decreased in all restrictive diseases because they decrease breathing space by definition. FEV1 and FEC will both be decreased, but FEC will be more decreased, unlike in obstructive diseases where FEV1 was more affected. Therefore, the FEV1 over FEC ratio in ILD is normal or even elevated. And on top of that, DLCO is decreased because there's material blocking the diffusion of gases between the air and blood. 
Awesome. Thanks for breaking that down for us, Ben. On this last point, what's another lab finding you would see if you were to sample ABGs? You would see an elevated AA gradient, meaning there would be a larger difference between the oxygen in the arteries and the alveoli. That's because oxygen is blocked by the fibrosis from getting out of the alveoli and into the blood. This also explains our patient's hypoxia. And we'll delve into the many causes of hypoxia in a later episode. Now that we've diagnosed our patient with IPF, what can we do for him? Luckily, he doesn't smoke or have GERD, but we would recommend cessation and PPIs respectively if he did. We'd also want to give him supplemental oxygen to correct his mild hypoxia. And depending on how bad his lung function is on PFTs, we give him antifibrotic therapies to slow down progression of the disease. Great. Now let's talk about another test favorite cause of ILD. Ben, take it away. So now we have a 37-year-old female who comes in with sudden fever, dyspnea, and cough. She's been hospitalized six times over the last three years for similar symptoms. She would receive antibiotics and her symptoms would resolve after one to two days. She's also noticed that she's generally had decreased exercise tolerance since these episodes started. Vitals show a temp of 38 and an SpO2 of 90%. Exam shows mild respiratory distress and diffuse fine crackles throughout the lung fields. What is your main differential and what leads you toward the top diagnosis? I would say at first, I thought that this was adult onset asthma. There was no specific exposure mentioned, but it definitely sounded like an acute on chronic issue. These diffuse fine crackles make me lean more towards an interstitial lung disease, but this doesn't sound like your typical IPF. Definitely not. What is the specific diagnosis you're thinking of and how does this presentation lead you there? So this is sounding most like hypersensitivity pneumonitis to me because this disease typically presents with recurrent episodes of fever and respiratory complaints or distress, such as in this patient. It also sounds like the disease is chronic enough that she's starting to have some dyspnea on exertion, even when she's not having an acute episode. Perfect walkthrough of your thought process. Can you break down the pathophys of hypersensitivity pneumonitis or HP? Sure. So HP is essentially an immunologic response to an antigen, which results in granulomatous lymphocytic lung inflammation. Over time, this can lead to fibrosis from frequent inflammation and thus restrictive lung disease. What are some common triggers and therefore hints on the test for HP? Common triggers are new exposures to animals, chemicals, mold, or aerosolized bacteria, often from a new occupation such as farming, in various food industries, or sanitation. Certain drugs such as nitrofurantoin or methotrexate can also cause an HP-like reaction. What tests should we do for a patient with suspected HP? Definitely a chest x-ray and probably some PFTs as well. You can also get a lung biopsy if you really want to nail the diagnosis. What do we expect on chest x-ray? As with most ILDs, you would expect bilateral interstitial opacities, which correspond to the diffuse fine crackles that we heard on exam. What about our PFTs? We would expect a restrictive pattern, meaning a decreased FVC and TLC, but normal or even slightly elevated FEV1 to FVC ratio. Because this patient seems to have chronic disease, we'd also expect a decreased DLCO from the fibrosis, which is forming. And finally, if we decided to get a biopsy, what would it show? You would see lymphocytes, non-caseating granulomas, and possibly interstitial fibrosis. So what do we do now for our patient? We certainly don't need to give her antibiotics. Acute episodes are self-resolving and only supportive care such as supplemental oxygen is required. The main intervention for HP is allergen avoidance, so a good history is crucial to discover what the offending antigen is. 
For chronic disease, glucocorticoids can be considered. There's nothing like getting a really great history and cracking open a diagnosis, don't you think, Yak? I definitely agree. So with that, let's move on to our third case of the episode. Ben, now we have a 35-year-old male who comes in with three months of worsening cough and dyspnea when rock climbing. He has a 10-pack year smoking history, and he's an apprentice shipbuilder. His vitals, including SpO2, are normal, and his lung sounds are also normal. This is a pretty vague presentation. What's your broad differential, Ben? Actually, I'd say that alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency is my top diagnosis at this point due to his age and smoking history. It could also be adult-onset asthma or some sort of interstitial lung disease, such as asbestosis from his shipbuilding exposure, or something a little more unusual like sarcoidosis. Much lower down would be other causes of interstitial disease, such as connective tissue disorders or vasculitis. Great. How can we start narrowing down our differential? I think that a chest x-ray could give us a lot of information, but that PFTs will also be necessary. Nice. So let's say we get the chest x-ray and the preliminary read comes back as bilateral interstitial opacities with no signs of pleural abnormalities. How does that change your differential? Now, interstitial diseases move right to the top, but asbestosis is less likely because you would normally see pleural calcifications or fibrosis. So I'm thinking this might be sarcoidosis or even amyloidosis. Obstructive diseases like asthma are still possible, but much less likely. So what is a basic test that you can get to support your hunch of sarcoidosis while awaiting PFT and final chest x-ray results? At this point, we probably would have sent a CBC and BMP for our patient, but a CMP would be useful because it might show an elevated calcium, which is a classic sign of sarcoidosis. It looks like the radiologist is out for lunch and the chest x-ray interpretation still isn't signed. So while we're waiting, what's the pathophys of sarcoidosis and how would that lead to hypercalcemia? Yeah, so sarcoidosis is a chronic multi-system disorder resulting from non-caseating granulomatous inflammation. The granuloma cells express 1-alpha-hydroxylase, which increases vitamin D activation and thus calcium levels. Nice. And what are some risk factors for sarcoidosis? Those would be female sex, African-American race, and young adult age. They don't need to give you any of these risk factors, and the test is moving away from mentioning race in general, since we generally shouldn't anchor our diagnoses based on demographics anyway. That's some great advice. And what are some risk factors for developing restrictive lung disease from occupational exposures? The classic two are asbestosis in construction or shipyard workers and silicosis in sandblasters or miners. Several several others, such as beryliosis or coal workers' lung, exist but are rarely tested. Briefly, what can you tell us about asbestosis? Asbestos loves to deposit in the pleural space, so pleural plaques or calcifications on imaging are a huge hint on the test for asbestosis. It can also increase the risk of lung cancer, particularly bronchogenic carcinoma, and much, much more rarely, mesothelioma, aka cancer of the pleural lining. After a great teaching session, let's say the chest x-ray finally comes back and we have some PFT results as well. Before I tell you, what were you expecting? If this is sarcoidosis, I'd expect hyalur fullness on chest x-ray, which looks like fluffy opacities representing hyalur adenopathy. And on PFTs, I'd expect an intrinsic restrictive pattern, so decreased TLC, FVC, and DLCO with a normal FEV1 over FVC ratio. Well, that's exactly what we found, so good job, Ben. Isn't it kind of weird that our patient had normal lung sounds at the beginning of all of this, though? Nope. Actually, a lot of people with sarcoidosis have normal lung sounds until very late in the disease. 
And can we definitively diagnose our patient with sarcoidosis? Not quite. We'll need to get a biopsy of lung tissue showing the non-caseating granulomas first. Perfect. So the biopsy comes back positive for sarcoidosis. What are some other systems which might be affected by our patient's disease? Basically every system, actually. The ones they like to use as hints on the exam are hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, an autoimmune rash typically found on the shins called erythema nodosum, and AV block from direct cardiac invasion. You can also see uveitis, cardiomyopathy, facial nerve palsies, and migratory polyarthralgias. Wow, sounds like a lot to manage. How do we treat our patient with sarcoidosis? The good news is many cases of sarcoidosis resolve spontaneously and only require symptomatic treatment. Unfortunately, the only treatment for moderate to severe sarcoidosis consists of immunosuppressants such as corticosteroids, then methotrexate if there are issues or resistance to steroids, and finally, biologics like infliximab for refractory cases. What an interesting and awful disease, Ben. Let's wrap up with a case on extrinsic restrictive lung diseases. Perfect. So now we have a 50-year-old female, past medical history of hyperlipidemia and hypertension, who comes in with three months of fatigue and exertional dyspnea. She is a never smoker and works as an accountant. Her vitals show a blood pressure of 155 over 95 and a BMI of 50. Her exam reveals normal lung sounds and distant heart sounds, as well as truncal obesity. What are some possible diagnoses here? So the dyspnea on exertion can be concerning for heart failure, and she does have some risk factors such as hyperlipidemia and hypertension. This could also be obesity hypoventilation syndrome causing her dyspnea with comorbid obstructive sleep apnea. Let's break down that reasoning. What is obesity hypoventilation syndrome and how could we parse out that diagnosis? So obesity hypoventilation syndrome is a very well-named disease because the pathophys involves central adipose tissue preventing the chest wall from fully expanding. To make the diagnosis, we'll need a chest x-ray and ABG to rule out other causes and meet the diagnostic criteria. So firstly, the chest x-ray doesn't show any abnormalities and the ABG shows a PCO2 of 55, a PO2 of 72 and a pH of 7.32. How do you interpret those results? Sounds like our patient is hypercapnic, meaning she has a high level of CO2 in her blood, and this is causing a respiratory acidosis. This also meets the diagnostic criteria for obesity hypoventilation, which is daytime hypercapnia above 45 in an individual with a BMI over 30 and no other cause of hypoventilation. What is another test we should likely get to establish the diagnosis? We would wanna get some PFTs, which we would expect to show a restrictive pattern, as in a decreased TLC and decreased FVC, but in this case, a normal DLCO. And why would the DLCO be normal? Because unlike in intrinsic restrictive lung disease, there's no interstitial gunk preventing diffusion of gases between the airway and blood. This also explains why the AA gradient will be normal. In this case, we see a restrictive pattern because there is literally less space for the lungs to expand. Thanks for using the word gunk again. It made me feel really validated. Yeah, yeah of course, of course. What are some other commonly tested conditions which result in extrinsic restrictive lung disease? Ankylosing spondylitis, which is an autoimmune disease which causes inflammatory changes of vertebrae, restricts the ability of the chest wall to expand, similar to obesity. Neuromuscular disorders, particularly amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, lead to decreased ability of the diaphragm to contract and therefore expand lung space. Again, both of these diseases will show a restrictive pattern on PFTs, but will have a normal DLCO. 
Now, you mentioned something about obstructive sleep apnea or OSA. Is that a restrictive lung disease? It is not. However, it is highly comorbid with obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Despite its name, OSA is not an obstructive lung disease either. What is OSA then? OSA is a sleep breathing disorder, which can affect anyone, though most often those with higher BMIs. In OSA, the pharyngeal muscles over-relax, leading to transient airway closure and hypoventilation during sleep. This further results in daytime fatigue and mood changes. Patients also develop systemic and possibly pulmonary hypertension and can even develop right-sided heart failure over time. Sounds like an awful disease. How do we test our patient for it now that we have this established obesity hypoventilation diagnosis? Actually, any patient with obesity hypoventilation should get tested for OSA as well. In any case, if OSA is suspected, nocturnal polysomnography is the best test for diagnosis. Let's say our patient's polysomnography reveals they also have OSA. How do we treat her two comorbid newly diagnosed conditions? The first line therapy for both is nocturnal positive pressure ventilation, classically called CPAP, which opens up the hypoventilated airways. The next step would be weight loss and possibly bariatric surgery in severe cases. Hopefully CPAP helps our patient. And with that, we've covered the restrictive lung diseases. Suddenly, I feel free. Don't you mean unrestricted? See you next time.